Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Please be seated. Don't be such a doubting Thomas. It's such a common concept and phrase. It uh, is known by many who have never even dared open the pages of the Bible. The very idea of being full of doubts and full of suspicion, lack of faith. It's bad, right? Don't be like Thomas. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this passage preached, and that was the message. And it makes me cringe just just almost as much as the sermons that say, be like David or be like Daniel. <laughs> because that isn't the, it isn't the point of this text, right? This story really isn't about Thomas. And the truth of the matter is... It's not so much that we shouldn't be like Thomas, it's that we should recognize how very much we are, in fact, just like Thomas. And believe it or not, that's actually good news, or the beginning of good news. See, I believe that John's proposition for us this morning from this text is that Christ through his death and resurrection, has brought peace. And in light of that peace, we're called to believe. It's, in fact, his, his very last statement here in chapter 20. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Christ has brought peace. So believe. When I was a seminarian, I was taught this easy formula for preparing sermons, right? Um, It was actually based off of a homiletics textbook that was written here in Louisville, Kentucky by a fellow named William Broaddus. And Broaddus' big idea here is that every sermon contains an indicative and an imperative. An indicative is what is it that God has done for us in Jesus Christ? And the imperative is in light of that, what does he call us to do? See, Broadus's theory was that God doesn't tell us to do anything that he hasn't first empowered and equipped us to do through the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. And friends, I believe that. So our indicative here this morning is that Christ has brought peace, and our imperative is that we should therefore believe. I see three particular ways in our text this morning that Christ has brought peace to us I see that he has brought peace that soothes our fears. He has brought peace that confronts our doubts, and he's brought peace that ends our vain striving. We're going to look at each of those points over the next few minutes together. 
First, he brings peace that soothes our fears. If you look with me in verse 19 of our text this morning, John tells us on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now, remember where we're at in the timeline of the gospel here, right? Jesus uh, had, a, had a preaching ministry. John really quickly jumps into the very last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, focuses very much on his uh, entrance into Jerusalem, on the Passover, on his crucifixion. So, indeed, the disciples have had a really rough week. Um, They have endured the greatest um, trauma and disappointment in seeing their rabbi, their their teacher, who they had left their families and their careers and their homes to follow. Jesus was crucified in the most violent way. And all of the disciples fled in fear that they might be hung Next. Now, they know that Jesus is risen, as, uh, as we were told in our text last week. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. He, um, uh, his resurrection was made known to Peter and to John as well. And yet they're still up, locked in the upper room for fear of the Jews. And Jesus appears among them. Now remember, the room is locked. He wasn't there with them. And now all of a sudden, he's inside of the locked room with the disciples. And what does he say to them? Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And then he said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now, he's saying this to the men who are locked up in this upper room for fear of the Jews. And he says to them, peace, I want you to get out of the locked room. I want you to go out into the world um, uh, among these people who killed me and who probably also want to kill you. But peace, right? Don't be afraid. Well, I don't know about you, if I were in their shoes, I mean, I would certainly be filled with wonder and astonishment that this Jesus who was crucified a few days earlier is now standing among them and able to walk into rooms that were locked. Um, But Jesus, uh, I don't want to go out there. And when he had said this, though, John tells us in verse 22, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And this seems kind of random, I don't know. Uh, But if, if I were one of the disciples, I would be thinking, okay, Jesus was crucified. He's alive now. We were in the locked room. Now Jesus is with us. He's telling me to have peace. Don't be afraid. Be calm. I need to go out. Uh, they want to kill me, but I'm supposed to have peace about that. And now he's saying something to me about forgiving people their sins and not forgiving people their sins. And it seems kind of like a non sequitur. But if we go back a little bit further in the gospel, you might remember this story where uh, Jesus 
heals a man, then he, then he tells him that his sins are forgiven. Um, and, and the Pharisees were all up in arms about that, you know, that Jesus was doing these things with authority. And Jesus said, which is more difficult, to say get up and walk or to say that your sins are forgiven? It was a claim that Jesus made himself to divinity, to the authority that God had given him as Messiah and Redeemer and Savior to forgive sins. And so the point that he's making here to the disciples is, I'm giving you the ability to forgive and to withhold forgiveness. There is nothing now that I am withholding from you. It's the same idea that the Apostle Paul was on about when he said, you know, what, what, what more could there be? What else could the Father withhold from us if he has not withheld his own son? Jesus is giving them the Holy Spirit, and with the Holy Spirit, he's giving them authority. He's giving them power. He is giving them his blessing to go out into the world fearless. He's sending them out to take the good news of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit is a seal upon them. Christ has made peace, peace that soothes our fears. And that peace actually brings boldness to us. So as I was thinking through this this text, a a couple of illustrations came to mind. I I don't know if any of you watched the most recent Star Wars trilogy. It was it was terrible. (laughs) It was it was awful. But in the very last move, very last movie of the trilogy, uh, Ray, the main character, is all but defeated. She's, you know, here at this dark temple where Emperor Palpatine, Darth Sidious, is, is being raised up again, and, and he's, he's going to kill her. And Ray's laying on the ground, and all of a sudden she hears the voices of all of the other Jedi that came before her saying, Ray, we're with you. All of us are with you, right? And, and Ray finds the strength to, to get up, and, and then she kills Darth Sidious. It's kind of contradictory to the rest of the whole film trilogy, the, the, the way that it works. But, <laughs> but I kind of see that image here, right? This, this idea that Jesus, once crucified, now risen to life again, that, that is a kind of power that no one on earth had ever seen before, right? Jesus was raised to life in authority, and he says, peace, I'm with you, right? And it's that that presence, that coming alongside of presence of the Holy Spirit that actually gives the disciples, the apostles, right, the confidence that they need to step outside of that locked room and to go out into a world that hates them to share the good news of the gospel. Um, another, another picture that kind of came to my mind, I love history, so bear with me, uh, the Battle of Bosworth, right? So we're, we're talking about uh, Richard III and Henry VII. Richard was the last of the Yorkist kings of England. Henry Tudor was uh, claiming to be the, the heir to the Lancastrian line. Henry had been living in France his entire life in exile, but he had a moment where he thought that 
Richard was weak and he could potentially come and take the throne to England. And so Henry gathers up his forces. He brings mercenaries with him to cross the channel to come to England. And he meets with Richard and his forces at the Battle of Bosworth. And it seems that they were pretty evenly matched. And um, as they're engaging in battle, up over the hill overlooking the battlefield is Lord Stafford. Now, Lord Stafford was an interesting character. He was Henry VII's stepfather, um, kind of a shady character. Over his, his own life, he had changed sides between the Yorks and the Lancasters at least two or three times. And he sat there over the hill just to kind of see how the battle went so that he could then choose which side he was going to join. Uh, he's considered kind of a, a, a shady character for good reason because he, he didn't pick a side until he knew which side was going to win. But I think that it's an interesting concept here because Jesus, the risen Christ, right, standing in front of his disciples who are locked up in the upper room, terrified, fearful that they're going to be killed, can now see that death has no power over this risen Lord like Lord Stafford, they have the ability to join the battle knowing which side has already won. <clears throat> and we have that same kind of confidence, right? Jesus brings peace that soothes our fears and brings boldness. With David, we can say, the Lord is on my side. What can man do to me? Christ has brought us peace soothes our fears, but Christ has also brought peace that confronts our doubts. And this is the part where Thomas comes in here. If you look with me in verse 24 and 25, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and I place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. There's doubt right there. Now the thing is, and, and the story's been told so many times with so many different inflections, but I, I tend to read it a little bit differently. I, I, I used to hear it read that, you know, here's Thomas saying, I'll never believe, and then all of the other disciples are pointing at him, look behind you, look behind you, man, there's Jesus, <laughs> right? Making Thomas look like this big fool. But, but I don't really think that's the way that this happened. I, I, think that, I think that Jesus was filled with compassion for Thomas in that moment. And, and Jesus, being so full of compassion, shows up to provide for Thomas exactly what he needed. Exactly what he needed in that moment. I mean, here's Thomas, traumatized by the events of, of the last week. All of his hopes, all of his dreams were crushed. I mean, full of grief. And now Jesus comes alongside him very gently and says, Thomas, peace be with you. And so he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. See, Jesus provides Peace that confronted Thomas's doubts in that moment. And Thomas, now seeing Jesus in a completely new light, answered him in verse 28. My Lord 
and my God. See, up to, up to the point of the crucifixion, Thomas was most certainly convinced that Jesus was the son of David, the Messiah of God, the King of Israel. No doubt about it. But what he sees in this moment and what John would have us see as well in the risen Christ is that he is not simply man. He is fully man. But he's also God. Fully man. Fully God. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. It's as if the veil were removed from his face and he saw Jesus for the first time. In 2006, a, uh, a movie was released starring Naomi Watts and Edward Norton called The Painted Veil. I don't know if anybody's watched it. It's kind of obscure. One of my favorite movies, actually. I just, I love it. It's a period piece that happens in the 1920s. And, uh, and Edward Norton's character, Walter Fane, uh, at the beginning of the film, comes to London from Hong Kong. He's been serving as a civil servant. He's an epidemiologist serving in Hong Kong, but he comes home to England to find a wife and bring her back to Hong Kong with him. And he meets Naomi Watts' character, Kitty Garston. And Kitty is, um, she's vain. She's petty. She likes parties. She's not at all interested in Walter. Um, Walter actually proposes to her. She turns him down. And then she has real talk with her mom and dad over breakfast the next day where they tell her, you're an old maid. We're not going to continue to pay for you under our roof. You need to find a husband. This is a decent proposal. And Kitty, not so much out of love for Walter as hatred for her mother, um, decides to accept Walter's proposal. And so she and Walter go on honeymoon in Italy and then quickly uh, return to his home in Hong Kong. And Kitty just finds him to be the most dull person she's ever met. He's not good at conversation. He's not good at playing games. He's terrible at parties. And she thinks to herself, I've made a terrible mistake in marrying this guy. Anyway, fast forward a little bit. A, uh, an epidemic actually uh, breaks out in a small village in the mainland of China. And so Walter decides that he's going to go into the midst of this cholera epidemic because that's his job. And he brings his wife, miserable Kitty, along with him. And she complains and she whines. There's no good society here. There's no good food here. There are no good parties here. She just hates her husband for bringing her to this place. Um, and she's bored. And so she decides that she's going to go and volunteer at the orphanage in the village that's run by the local convent. And the mother superior of the convent tells Kitty, oh, you must be so proud of your husband. Of course, you can see written all over Kitty's face, what on earth are you talking about? My husband is the most boring, ridiculous man on earth. But the mother superior helps her to see how much he loves the children in the orphanage, how much of himself he sacrifices for the people of the village. And over the course of the film, Kitty begins to see her husband in a whole new light. Rather than focusing on his flaws and his faults, 
she begins to see some incredibly redeemable characteristics in her husband that are so much deeper than the man that she thought she would have liked to have married instead. Sadly, at the end of the film, Walter gets um, sick as well and dies after Kitty realizes she really loves her own husband. It's, it's a sad story, but I think it's, it's very deep and very profound that all of us come to Jesus with our own agenda. All of us come to Jesus wanting him to tell us all the things that we want to hear. Oftentimes, we wind up with a Jesus who looks an awful lot like ourselves. Brothers and sisters, when we see who Jesus really is, not who we've made him out to be. Our own perspective changes as well. Thomas came to Jesus as a political figure who was going to redeem Israel from Rome. But now he stands before his risen Lord and he sees Jesus as his Lord and his God. That's why John is able to say in verse 31, these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus has brought peace that soothes our fears. He brought peace that confronts our doubts. And the last thing that I think John has for us here today is that Jesus brings peace that ends our own vain striving. If you have a copy of Scripture uh, with you this morning, I'd encourage you actually to turn back a few chapters in John's Gospel to chapter 11. And I'm going to start at verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go into Judea again. But the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and, are go and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because this light is not in him. Now, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest and sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, and we may die with him there. 
what happened to Thomas over the course of nine chapters. This man who once said, we're going to go into Judea. We know that they want to kill us. We're going to fight, and if need be, I will die right alongside Jesus. To Thomas, the man who says, unless I see the wounds in his hands and feet and the wound in his side and place my hand inside of it, I will never believe. That would turn Thomas' confidence into such profound doubt. See, when, when most of us read Thomas in John eleven sixteen, we think, yes, that's the kind of faith that God wants, right? Yes, that's, we need to be like that. But the thing is, you know, a matter of weeks later, that faith that, that Thomas had that would have him go into such a dangerous, violent place, fearless, is seemingly gone. Um, if any of you have ever been mountain climbing, you may know that one of the big rules of mountain climbing is to make sure that you mark your path on the way up so that you can follow the same path on your way back down. It is so much easier to get a sense of the landscape when you are at the bottom climbing your way up. You can see which paths are clearer, which are gonna be more dangerous, right? When you're at the top of the mountain trying to descend, you don't have the same vantage. You can't really see clearly. So it's important, right, that you're able to remember which way did you come up so that you can take the same path on your way down. I'll say that there are two mountain climbers who ascended to the top of a mountain. And while they were at the peak, snow fell and it covered up their tracks. And say that they get to a point of convergence or of divergence, where there are two possible paths on the way down. I'll say that one of those climbers says, I know for certain, without a doubt, 100%, we came up the path to the right. And the second climber says, I'm not 100% certain. I have some doubts. But I believe we actually took the path to the left. And say that the two climbers decide they can't agree, and so the climber with 100% certainty decides to take the path to the right, and the other climber with the doubts decides to take the path to the left. And say that the climber with 100% certainty, in fact, was wrong. And he, on his climb down, steps on loose rocks and falls and plummets to his death. I would ask you, Whose faith was better? The climber with 100% certainty or the climber with doubts? You see, the, the thing about faith is that it's not really about the veracity of our own faith or about the absence of doubt, so much as it is about the worthiness of those in whom we place our faith. Now, I love my wife. I would say I have a lot of faith 
in Divina. But if I went to the doctor and the doctor told me that I had a brain tumor, I would not let my wife operate on my brain. <laughs> I have faith in her, but not as a brain surgeon. Okay? See, and this is such a big message in our culture right now is just believe, just believe. Believe is what's most important. I remember I was watching uh, The Crown. The, I think it was the last season where, where Philip's mother, um, Princess Alice, comes from, from Greece back to England. And um, Philip has lost his faith in God. And uh, his mother, Princess Alice, actually had become a Greek Orthodox nun. And she asks him, Philip, how is your faith? And he tells her of late, I don't seem to have much of a faith. And she says, that's not good. That's not good. You need to have a faith. You need to believe in something. And there is this part inside of me that just, oh, no, that's so wrong. I don't think that's actually what Princess Alice would have told him in that circumstance. I don't believe that. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's just rife in film and theater and entertainment. It's just the importance of believing in something. Even if it just means believe in yourself. Friends, if I place my belief in the flying spaghetti monster, I'm not going to get very far. See, Jesus brings to us peace that ends our vain striving. It's not about believing harder. It's not about trusting more. It's not about looking deep within ourselves and finding whatever it is that we need to move forward. Because it's not really about our faithfulness, it's about his faithfulness, right? That even, we're told in the New Testament, even when we are faithless, he is faithful. It's what the psalmist was about when he says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That, That phrase, steadfast love, Actually, the, the word in Hebrew is chesed, right? Which actually means covenant faithfulness, right? God has made promises to you and to me that regardless of my doubts, regardless of my faltering, regardless of times when my fears, when my doubts, when my striving falls short, he remains faithful. Friends, Christ has brought peace. Believe. 